Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half, episode 2.8 Vicky, the 99-Day Empress. Last time, we took a look at Vicky's family life, as her son Wilhelm turned from quite a nice young boy to an arrogant entitled teenager to a nasty little piece of you-know-what of a man. We looked at the kinds of men and women that her elder children ended up becoming, and the tragic death of another child. We also saw how the Bismarckian propaganda machine ramped up its attacks on her during her years as Crown Princess of the German Empire, and finally ended with the onset of Fritz's tragic illness right on the eve of him succeeding to his father's crown. It wasn't exactly a light episode. Things didn't go great for her. And it's all about to get a whole lot worse. Today, we'll bring Vicky's story to a close by looking at her ever-so-short reign as Empress of Germany and its aftermath. It's been a long journey with her. It's time to bring it to an end. Before we get going, I'd like to give a little plug to the show's Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. The support that you guys give the show is vital to keeping the whole thing going, and it's so much appreciated. You can start at as little as a dollar a month, and it keeps me going in books, fees, and snacks. If you can give, then I would really appreciate it. And now, let's get started. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Vicky had married Fritz because she loved him, but let's be real here, that was mostly just a bonus. They were married because he was the future ruler of one of the most powerful nations in Europe, and she was the eldest daughter of the queen of a quarter of the globe. From the moment they both said I do, 
Everyone was looking forward to the moment when they would fulfil their ultimate destiny, the time when Fritz was ruler of his homeland and Vicky as his queen. When she became a princess of Prussia back in 1858, it was thought that it wouldn't be too long before this came to pass. The king was a sick man, and her father-in-law, the heir to the throne, was already an old man. Together she and her young husband could fulfil their destiny and rule together for many decades. Yet both men had clung on to life for far longer than had been inspected, and now, at this moment, the one they had been waiting for for so long, Fritz was a sick man and probably dying. The tragic irony was not lost on Vicky. Quote, to think of my poor Fritz succeeding his father as a sick and stricken man is so hard. How much good he might have done. I pray that he may be spared to be a blessing to his people and Europe. Queen Victoria, in a letter written shortly after the Kaiser's death, wrote to Vicky, quote, It is difficult for me to know how to begin my letter. My heart is very, very full. May every blessing be yours and may you be able to see the right thing done for beloved Fritz, as it should be, and every possible help and care that is needed afforded. How suddenly all this comes! Doubtless beloved Fritz must feel deeply the loss of his beloved father, but on the other hand, the relief from the extraordinary and incomprehensible thraldom and tyranny must and will be enormous. My own dear Empress Victoria, it does seem an impossible dream, May God bless her. You know how little I care for rank or titles, but I cannot deny that after all that has been done and said, I am thankful and proud that dear Fritz and you should come to the throne. Indeed, despite his poor health and Wilhelm's best efforts, there was no question of Fritz not taking the throne. This was his birthright, and he and Vicky were determined to make the best of what time that they had. Fritz had resisted calls for him to return to Berlin previously, as the journey would be perilous in his current condition. But now that he was the Kaiser, he had no choice. Luckily, this being the modern world, they didn't have to travel on horseback or by carriage, like so many of their forebears would have had to do. They instead boarded a train, and a couple of days later, they had arrived in the capital. The weather was filthy. Freezing cold, heavy snowfall and strong icy winds. But this did not chill the enthusiasm of the crowds gathering at Vestend Station. Their patience was rewarded when, at 11pm on the 11th of March 1888, they caught their first glimpse of Emperor Frederick III of Germany, with his wife, Empress Victoria, by his side. The bad weather, though, meant that Fritz, bundled up in a great army coat and thick scarf wrapped around his head, did not stick around for long and quickly headed off to Charlottenburg. The next day, the business of government began. First of all, Fritz reappointed Bismarck to the position of Chancellor. He then issued two manifestos, one for the people and one for Bismarck himself. These had been drafted some time before, back when Fritz was well, and were actually remarkably moderate. The idea had been to effect liberal changes slowly and gradually. He had expected to have plenty of time to bring about his vision. He had not foreseen the circumstances in which he currently found himself. He was thin and sallow, with bulging eyes. He made an odd gurgling sound when he breathed. And of course he couldn't speak, he could only communicate via pen and paper. Over the next few days, Fritz held audiences with all the key people, all of whom were in town for his father's funeral. 
Their reactions fell broadly into two camps. First were those that saw him and thought, well, I thought he'd look worse, and he'll probably recover this and be right as rain in no time. The second were shocked and appalled by the ailing man who had just taken over the Empire, and blamed Vicky for concealing his true condition. Leading that latter charge was an old Prussian general called Alfred von Voltesee. A hero of the Wars of Unification, Voltesee was a leading member of the German general staff, and the kind of arch-conservative that even Bismarck feared. A kind of proto-Nazi, he yearned to lead an all-out war against all of those who he perceived as Germany's enemies, including the liberals and the Jews, who were currently under the protection of Fritz and Vicky. Of the new empress, he wrote that, quote, She wishes to create ruins before retiring from the stage and to make things difficult for the crown prince and inflict damage on Germany. A more sympathetic view, but still along the same lines, came from a friend of Queen Victoria's, who said of Fritz, quote, He can only be an emperor in name, and how long will he be that? I hear that he and his son are reconciled, but not so Prince Wilhelm and his mother. The sad spectacle of these family dissensions are given to the whole world, for everybody knows about them and talks of them. This was their great challenge, to convince the old guard that they weren't deep state enemies, to effect change that would normally take decades in a very short amount of time, and to do it all while all around knew that your reign would be short, while the air gathers support while waiting impatiently in the wings. Vicky knew about the challenges she faced, and laid them out in a letter to a friend. Quote, The trial laid upon us is a very heavy one, and it is not easy to meet it with all the courage and energy necessary. One tries to keep a stout heart, and hopes on that things may improve. Fritz soon settled into his routine. He would rise early, be at his desk by 9.30, and work steadily till lunch. After that, he would have a brief rest before receiving Bismarck and other visitors. Once that was taken off, it was more paperwork. He would then dine around 8, and then head to bed around 10. This was a fairly busy schedule, but for a man in Fritz's condition, it was positively lethal. He faced a constant battle with exhaustion, with frequent bouts of coughing and migraines. It was said that he was literally trying to work himself to death. Among his first actions was to reward those who had been loyal to him and Vicky over the years. Awards and promotion to his military comrades were fairly uncontroversial, but he also presented honours to Jewish friends and allies, which infuriated the anti-Semitic reactionaries. Many of these did not get through, with Bismarck effectively vetoing them. In his state, Fritz had few avenues available to get his way in the face of such opposition, and so he had to back down. He also wanted to start his reign with a general pardon for political prisoners, but again these were blocked by his ministers, who threatened to resign en masse if he insisted upon it. They negotiated together for a much watered-down version of the proclamation. Not a great start. But Vicky had it much worse, as she faced the same trifecta of discrimination as before. She was A, a woman, B, foreign, and C, a liberal. None of that had changed upon becoming the Kaiserin. This was not helped by the fact that, because of his ailments, she had to be by Fritz's side constantly. Any hint of her accumulating power was resisted, and this came up quite early on. With Fritz obviously struggling to keep up with his workload, 
it was obvious that he needed a deputy who could sign less important papers on his behalf. Vicky presented herself as the obvious choice here. Fritz trusted her implicitly, and it wasn't exactly without historical precedent for royal spouses to deputise for their husbands. Old Queens of England podcast listeners will be very familiar with this. Yet many people at the top decried the indignity of being ruled by a woman, and so she was forced to stand aside in favour of her son. Fritz was anxious to get closer to Wilhelm, to bring him inside the inner circle, but the paranoid crown prince constantly believed that he was being sidelined by his mother. His hatred of her at this point knew no bounds, and while he still respected his father, he could not be close to him while Vicky was still around. While Vicky had given in on the matter of being able to sign Fritz's papers, she would not acquiesce to every pushback from Bismarck. It just wasn't in her nature. But one frustrating thing about Vicky is that she constantly seems to pick the wrong battles, dying on hills that she could never hope to secure and didn't need to fight on. This had happened most recently with her daughter Moretta's proposed marriage to Sandra of Bulgaria, and right now she raised the matter again. If you remember, the two had been very keen on the match, but political considerations had made it impossible. Since then, Sandra had been ousted in a coup and now found himself in exile. Now that Fritz was in power, Vicky was determined to push the marriage through, but Sandra himself had resisted. He had no prospects. Crown Prince Wilhelm also vehemently opposed the match and would make Moretta's life hell once he came to the throne if she married him. And, most pertinently, Sandra himself had fallen for a young opera singer. If she had been acting rationally, Vicky would have seen that pursuing this was a terrible idea, but she seems to have been convinced that she had to do this for her daughter's sake. She even tried to arrange an elopement, sneaking Moretta out of the country and arranging a commission for Sandro in the Austro-Hungarian army. But her plans were quickly betrayed, and was even reprimanded by her husband, who, like everyone else, could see what a bad idea this was. Nevertheless, he did at least give it some lip service, and this scared the living hell out of Bismarck. He still feared that the marriage would anger the Russians, and even when he received a letter from St. Petersburg saying that actually they weren't all that fussed, he still opposed it. He even suspected Vicky of having him replaced by Sandro, an absurd suggestion, but one he nonetheless feared. He also wanted to keep Wilhelm on side, and the crown prince was as opposed to the match as ever. Bismarck was, as usual, cunning and duplicitous, to Vicky, he was all charm, saying that he wasn't saying the marriage could never happen, but that it should instead be postponed. Until the time was better, when things were more settled. Behind her back, he went to the press and started spreading muck. He spread a story, for example, that he was on the brink of resigning over the issue, and that that would inevitably mean the end of close ties with Russia and Austria-Hungary, and eventual subservience to the UK. This wasn't just about Moretta's marriage. Bismarck was using this fight as part of his greater foreign policy goal to oppose the British and cultivate close ties with the Habsburgs and Romanovs. Vicky had fallen into a trap that Bismarck hadn't even set for her, but he was never one to let a good crisis go to waste. He took full advantage, throwing Vicky under yet another bus. In April, Queen Victoria went and visited Berlin to see her daughter for the first time since she had become Empress of Germany. Earlier that month, Fritz had taken a turn for the worse, 
and so this visit also had something of a farewell visit feel. When she arrived in the city, she headed straight to Fritz's sickbed in Charlottenburg. She was greeted by an excited but stricken Fritz, propped up by pillows in his bed. They spent some tender hours there, catching up on family. Victoria wrote in her diary that after a while they left Fritz and had some mother-daughter time. Quote, Afterwards, Vicky sat talking with me for some time in my room. She is very sad and cried a great deal. Besides her cruel anxiety about dear Fritz, she has so many worries and unpleasantness. But of course, there was a political dimension as well. With Fritz's time as emperor drawing to a close barely after starting, Victoria needed to plan for the transition, and so held a meeting with Bismarck. The Iron Chancellor was quite taken by the British Queen. Reportedly after she left the room, he mopped his brow and declared, quote, That was a woman. One can do business with her. He even walked back some of his anti-British propaganda that he had been pushing out. So impressed was he by the grandmother of Europe. It even managed to smooth over the controversy over Moretta's proposed marriage. It would never take place, but at least Vicky stopped taking flack for it. While Vicky was disliked by much of the German population, this was not the case with her mother. She was met with rapturous crowds wherever she went, showered with bouquets and cheers. Not so much with the sunny young Wilhelm, though, who coldly remarked that it was, quote, high time the old lady died. What a charmer. Her visit, though, was fairly short, and Vicky was in bits when her mother left her. She saw her to the station and burst into sobs as the train departed. Quote, It was terrible to see her standing there in tears while the train moved slowly off, and to think of all she was suffering and might have to go through. My poor, poor child, what I would not do to help her in her hard lot. The stress was taking a great toll on Vicky. She suffered from constant rheumatism and headaches and barely slept. But she was always there, at 6.30 sharp in the morning before Fritz awoke, and gave him every ounce of herself that she had. Fritz had many worries at this time. He worried about the power of Bismarck and the Conservatives. He worried about what they might do to Vicky and his children once he died. But perhaps most of all, he worried about Wilhelm. He knew that his son, his political polar opposite, would rule in a manner of which that he would disapprove, and so trying to do as much as he could in the short time that he had. He sent a large sum of money to help victims of floods in East Prussia, and also launched an initiative to build social housing for the poor in Berlin. But this was far too much like socialism for the dominant reactionaries who blocked the policy. He was even told that there wouldn't be enough time to get his likeness on the coinage, It would take months, and he didn't have that kind of time. What he did manage to get through was the uncontroversial easy stuff, such as a commission to look at new army training methods and a new uniform design for the navy. One of his finements moments as emperor, though, came at the end of May, when his son Henry married Irene of Hesse. She was the daughter of Vicky's sister Alice, and so this was a huge royal wedding, with dignitaries from across Prussian and European nobility in attendance, including Bertie, the Prince of Wales, and some Romanovs from Russia. Fritz and Vicky had worked diligently on every aspect of the wedding, and the Kaiser was determined to attend. On the day itself, he was in even worse shape than usual, and so was late arriving, 
entering the ceremony just as the chaplain was about to begin his address. Dressed in full military uniform and carrying a cane for support, he walked down the aisle and took his seat next to his wife. Quote, I kept my tears back with difficulty and felt with bitter sorrow that we never should see him again attending such a festive gathering as emperor. Her immense bittersweet pride is really evident there. But the best review of his appearance came from the great Prussian general, Hermit von Moltke, who had been in charge of the Prussian armies throughout the wars of unification. As Fritz left the chapel unassisted at the end of the ceremony, von Moltke, no ally of Fritz, told a friend that, quote, I have seen many brave men, but none as brave as the emperor has shown himself today. He also managed to carry out in this time what some historians have called the only major successful political act of the reign. The most reactionary and hated member of the German government at this time was the interior minister, Robert von Puttkamer. He hated Fritz and was a close ally of his son Wilhelm. He had been famously responsible for releasing the news of the death of his father, Kaiser Wilhelm I, without making any mention of his successor. Fritz had wanted to get rid of him for his entire reign, but had never managed to do it, but found a way, tying it to his signature on a controversial bill, extending the term limits for German parliamentarians. Yet even here, there was a great cast for Vicky. Bismarck played both sides, pretending to back Fritz on this before flip-flopping and embarrassing him in the press. Moreover, he blamed the Kaiserin for it, saying that she had been behind the whole thing. This was believed by everyone, including Crown Prince Wilhelm, who wrote scathingly about his mother's treachery to his friends. A week after Henry's wedding, Fritz and Vicky boarded a steamer to take him to their summer residence in Potsdam. Their home at the new palace was their pride and joy, and they were greeted there by their two youngest daughters, Sophia and Margaret. They spent days lounging in the sunshine, driving about the estate, and getting on with the business of government. Fritz regularly received visitors at the new palace, including, of course, Bismarck. On the 12th of June, he received the Iron Chancellor in the salon of the palace, and after their business was concluded, he grasped Bismarck and his wife's hand together, a clear sign that he wanted him to protect her. Bismarck, in response, kissed his emperor's hand, but gave a rather open answer. Quote, Your Majesty may rest assured that I shall never forget that Her Majesty is my queen. Vicky recorded that, as he left the room, Bismarck had a spring in his step. Quote, I fancied I saw a quick look of triumph, of relief and joy in his eyes, as if he had been set free, and now he could press on full speed to the new task of guiding a young master. To me it was like a stab in the dark, but I couldn't take it amiss. It was only natural for a man like him. Fritz, after all, was finished. So why waste time in sentimental lamentations? I shook his hand and let him go. Shortly after the Chancellor left, it became clear that the moment they had all feared was at hand. Vicky wrote to her mother, quote, Things are not going well. I have not much hope left. But how long our precious one will be left to us I do not know. It cannot be for very long. I feel so like a wreck, a sinking ship, so wounded and struck down, so sore of here as if I were bleeding from a thousand wounds. On the 14th of June, she was woken up by Fritz's doctor at three in the morning, who told her that Fritz's pulse was weakened, his breathing rapid, 
and was running a high fever. She did everything that she could for him and gathered the family around. She stayed by his bedside all day and all night. At 10am the next day, the time came. Vicky asked if he was tired. He wrote for her, oh, very, very, before falling unconscious. Quote, Gradually, his dear eyes took on a different look, Vicky wrote later. We held a light up, but he didn't blink at all. I raised his dear hand and he let it drop of itself. He coughed hard once more, took a deep breath three times, then gave an involuntary jerk and closed his eyes tight and convulsively as if something was hurting him. Then everything was quiet. At 11am, Kaiser Friedrich III, Fritz to his friends, died. Above his deathbed was a laurel wreath, the same one that he had presented to Vicky on his victorious return from the Franco-Prussian War 17 years earlier. She took it down and placed it on his body, along with his sword, which she placed on his arm. She then kissed his hands and folded them together. Quote, The wrench is too terrible, she wrote to her mother that evening, when two lives that are one are thus torn asunder, and I have to remain and remember how he went from me. Oh, the look of his dear eyes, the mournful expression when he closed them forever, the coldness and the silence that follow when the soul has fled. Now all the struggles are over. I must stumble on my way alone. I shall disappear as much from the world as possible, and certainly not push myself forward anywhere. For the second time that year, the Kaiser was dead. Long live Kaiser Wilhelm II. Speaking of Wilhelm, his extraordinary paranoia regarding his mother and father's antics led him to act with pitiless disgrace. Even before his father had breathed his last, he had ordered soldiers into the palace. As soon as he had become Kaiser, the army sealed it off and began to ransack it. All correspondence was read. No one could leave without a permit. All of Fritz's possessions were searched. His writing desk was torn apart. Wilhelm was certain he would find incriminating documents, something to prove his conspiracy theories true. But he found nothing. Indeed, anticipating their son's move, Vicky and Fritz had moved all their correspondence to England. Having failed to embarrass his parents this way, he then attempted to prove that he had been right about questioning his father's diagnosis. He had made it his constant refrain that Fritz's British doctor was at fault, and that his own hand-picked German physician should have been listened to. But the autopsy, performed against Vicky's will, confirmed the original diagnosis. Wilhelm then moved to stage two of his plan. Having failed to further smear his father's name, he now determined that it would be entirely forgotten, the whole short reign dismissed as an irrelevancy. While previous German and Prussian rulers were given lavish funerals, Fritz's was a hastily organised affair. No foreign princes were invited, the funeral route was cordoned off to prevent onlookers from viewing the procession, and everyone involved treated it as a bit of a joke. Vicky, foreseeing this horrible insult, held her own private ceremony with her daughters, remembering Fritz for the great man that he was. Around this time, Vicky wrote in a letter, quote, We had a mission. We were faithful to what we believed and knew to be right. We loved Germany. We wished to see her strong and great, 
not only with the sword, but in all that was righteous in culture, in progress, in liberty. But now, that was all over. Wilhelm was in charge now, and he cared for little else except the sword. Having stomped on his father's legacy, Wilhelm now tried to remove his mother completely from the picture. The first thing he did was to evict her from her beloved new palace, which had been renamed Frederikskron in Fritz's honour shortly before his death. When she asked if she could move to smaller lodgings nearby, that was again refused. She needed to be far, far away. He even declined to give his father an allowance on the same lines that had been given to his grandmother Augusta on her husband's death. He said it was too expensive. Next came a purge of Fritz's friends and allies in government. They were castigated as being traitors, ones that wished Germany ill, that wanted to prevent her from becoming great again. They were harassed, imprisoned and forced out of office. Most of her German relatives abandoned her cause and threw their lot in with Wilhelm, many of them holding their noses as they did so. As one might imagine, this all tore Vicky apart. She wrote to her mother, quote, Wilhelm is not quite aware of the insults and injuries I have suffered at his hands, though I certainly did my best to enlighten him. As he does not feel for his mother, he cannot be surprised if she who gave him so much love and care now can only remember with pain that he is her son. Perhaps years may change this, but at present I am too sore and have suffered too much. He has it in his power, if he likes, to change this. I can do nothing, nor will I ever give way and humour him, and bear all in patience and silence. He simply accepts that, and thinks that he can continue to ride roughshod over me. There he makes a mistake. I think he is simply so wrapped up in himself, his power, his vanity, his plans, his position, that he does not remember my existence. I so thoroughly and utterly disapprove of all that has been done since that dread day, with very few exceptions, and have so little hope of its mending that I strive to hear as little and think about it as little as I can. But one cannot cease to care for the country and its interests, and it is difficult to become indifferent to things which, for thirty years and up to last June, seemed of vital importance to Fritz and to me, and which we watched with such anxiety. She finally got some relief in November of that same year, when Queen Victoria, against the advice of her Prime Minister, sent the royal yacht Victoria and Albert to pick up Vicky and her daughters for a trip home. Highly unusually, she went to the port itself and greeted her daughter as she came off the boat. Vicky was overcome with emotion and burst into tears in front of all onlookers. Her trip back home did her the power of good. It's amazing what being surrounded by loved ones who are not heartless bastards will do for you. A few months later, she wrote to a friend, quote, It has been a great boon and blessing to me to have been allowed to spend these months here in beloved England with the Queen whose goodness and kindness and sympathy helps me to bear the heavy burden of sorrow and bereavement laid upon me. I shall want much strength and courage to live on, now that the light and joy has passed from my life and its object has gone, its hopes buried. But if it be God's will I should remain yet in for a while, to struggle on alone, I must try and turn my time to good account, and be what little use I can to my three dear girls left without a father at this age when they most wanted him. 
After a blissful few months, Vicky returned, likely with a heavy heart, to Berlin. Over the next few years, Vicky had a few priorities. The first was to get her own affairs in order, and in this she was lucky. A friend bequeathed to her a large sum of money that she used to build a villa in Frankfurt that she named Friedrichshof in her late husband's honour. She filled this new home with all the things she loved. Books, pictures and paintings, mixing German and English styles to create something truly authentic to her. Indeed, due to Wilhelm's continued policy of keeping her out of Berlin, she spent a great deal of time there. As for her elder children, Charlotte and Henry threw their lot in with their elder brother and were very distant to her. And while her three youngest daughters stuck with her for a time, they too were soon off, married to various princes. Sophia married Constantine, Crown Prince of Greece, in 1889, Margaret de Frederick Charles of Hesse in 1893, and Moretta, having failed to marry her beloved Sandro, married Adolf of the tiny German principality of Schaumburg-Lippe in 1890. Having sorted out her own living conditions and seen her daughters married off, she could then focus on what to do with the rest of her time. Unsurprisingly, she resolved to try to do good. She devoted much of her time to charity work, especially for hospitals and bazaars for the people of Berlin. She didn't try and force herself into the German political arena anymore. She never put aside her liberal principles. She simply acknowledged that there was nothing that she could do to help promulgate them. There were some functions that she could not avoid attending. People that she loathed and who loathed her back that she had to encounter. But mostly she was able to do her own thing. Wilhelm's animosity towards his mother never waned and remained completely awful to her for the rest of her life. He even intervened in her charity work. Vicky's mother-in-law, Augusta, was the patron of a number of big charities, including the German Fred Cross and the Fatherland's Women's Association. And when she died in 1890, Vicky thought that these honours should pass to her. She was next in line, after all, and much more interested in charity work than her daughter-in-law, But, alas, no. Augusta, Wilhelm and Donna contrived to steal these away from her. Vicky was deeply upset. Quote, I have for years taken trouble to prepare everything for this. I am the only lady in the family who is passed over and has never had, even for so short of time, the opportunity of helping others in an official capacity. It was done to prevent my having a work which would give me a certain amount of influence. I am well aware that a large and powerful party are determined that I should have nothing in my hands which could cause people to look at me or apply to me. After I've waited here for 40 years and not had an easy life, it does seem hard. She had barely recovered from this slight when Wilhelm struck again. The people of Berlin had raised funds to build a great statue of Fritz, but when they applied to their Kaiser for permission to erect it, he refused. He never actually officially said no, but he purposefully sent it into bureaucratic purgatory, meaning that it would never be built. An incredibly disrespectful thing to do to a former monarch, let alone his father. Wilhelm's anti-British attitude also saw him be completely dismissive to the Prince of Wales, but to Queen Victoria, he was much more respectful. This was mostly down to expedience, but it didn't do him much good. The Queen had little choice but to treat him with decorum, He was a powerful foreign neighbour, after all, but she found her grandson to be pompous, vulgar and rude. 
And then there was Bismarck. The Iron Chancellor had been in power for decades and was now serving his third Kaiser. Wilhelm's politics were much more in line with his own, but he was also wary of the new emperor. He agreed with Queen Victoria's assessment of him and tried to mould the young man into being a ruler in Bismarckian style. But Wilhelm had never really taken to being taught much of anything. Unwilling to be the Chancellor's pawn, Wilhelm forced him to resign, ending three decades of almost unbroken continuity at the top. Just before his fall, when he'd exhausted all other options, Bismarck paid a call to Vicky in the vain hope that she might save him. She replied simply, quote, You come to me when you know what you have done between me and my son? I cannot help you. Even so, she later remarked to her mother, quote, I cannot approve of the way in which Prince Bismarck's resignation came about. The love of playing the despot is very great. His genius and prestige might still have been useful and valuable for Germany and for the cause of peace. These were prophetic words. The fall of Bismarck led to a collapse in the carefully constructed European geopolitical map that the Chancellor had spent his career creating. He had recognised the importance of keeping Russia on side, but Wilhelm almost immediately antagonised them by failing to renew a treaty of friendship that had been signed three years earlier. Not wanting to let Russia fall into the hands of the French and so be caught in their pincer, Wilhelm tried to cultivate good relations with Paris, and in this, he finally found a use for his dear old mum. Vicky had loved France for much of her life, ever since she had visited the court of Napoleon III on her first foreign trip as a girl. She was also well known as a patron of the arts, and so it was suggested that she go to Paris with the aim of attracting French artists to participate in an international art conference in Berlin. But ill feeling between Germany and France still ran deep. Let's not forget that the humiliation of the Franco-Prussian War was only 20 years old, and the French were still desperate to recover territories lost to the Germans in the peace treaty. Vicky, who wanted to act as an olive branch, was instead portrayed as a conquering German rubbing salt into French wounds. When she visited Versailles and Saint-Cloud, she was pilloried in the French press for going out of her way to insult her hosts. What artists she did manage to persuade to come to Berlin were accused of treachery. Things reached such a fervour that she was told to leave the country at once for her own safety. This would be the last time that Vicky would be used as a political pawn. It had been a very particular set of circumstances that provoked Wilhelm to deploy her, and he wasn't willing to do so again. Out of a sense of duty, she did tend to winter in Berlin, working on projects for various charities. Yet she was as disliked by German society as she had ever been, and the feeling was mutual. She wrote of it, quote, I shrink so from all that is show and ostentation, and which forces one into public when one's feelings seem so sacred that one cannot bear to be amongst a quantity of people, some most well-meaning, and others who have behaved so ill and now make a show of loyalty, the hypocrisy of which makes me sick. She made a few journeys back to Britain, visiting her elderly mother at Osborne and Balmoral, and taking part in the rather muted Diamond Jubilee celebrations in 1897. Mostly, she spent her time at Friedrichshof, with her books, art and memories. She'd enjoy watching her daughter's young marriages from afar, and enjoy being a loving grandmother. 
There was stability at Friedrichshof. Calm. She could be surrounded by people that loved her and that she wanted to be there. It was her home, not one that Wilhelm could take away on a whim. With her out of the picture, and no longer seemingly a threat to him, mother-son relations improved, if only a little. Their letters became a little warmer, and she even told Victoria that she had forgiven him for all the wrongs that he had done her. But that notwithstanding, she feared for Germany under his rule. She knew his mental instability, his bellicose militarism, his anger. She told a friend, quote, My son will be the ruin of Germany. Yet she had accepted that there was nothing that she could do. She had done her duty, done more than could ever have been expected of her. Now her time in the spotlight was over. In late 1898, she went to winter at Balmora with her family, but while there, suffered from almost constant pains. Upon visiting a doctor, she was told that she had inoperable breast cancer. She told few people, only her mother, Bertie, younger sister Beatrice and close members of her household. She did her best to keep to her new routines, but the pains got ever worse. She was advised to travel to Italy for a bit, in the hopes that warmer climes might do her good, but it was no good. Pain was a new reality. She hung on for just long enough to outlive her mother. Queen Victoria died on the 22nd of January 1901, but Vicky was too sick to travel to England. Wilhelm had already gone there to be at his grandmother's deathbed and stayed for the funeral. On his return to Germany, he travelled to Friedrichshof and shared some tender moments with his mother, united in sorrow at the death of the one person whom they both truly loved and respected. Her eldest brother Bertie, now starred as King Edward VII, also came to visit for what they both knew would likely be the last time. Indeed, the next few months saw a procession of family, including her surviving children and grandchildren. Her youngest daughters, Moretta, Sophia and Margaret, took turns at nursing their mother, never leaving her side. On the 4th of August, she fell more seriously ill, and the whole family was summoned to say their final goodbyes. At 6pm the following day, she finally died, just a week before her 61st birthday. In a mirroring of the aftermath of Fritz's death, Wilhelm immediately ordered a search of her house in the hope of finding incriminating papers. But again, none were found. Her funeral wishes were simple. No fuss, no pomp, no lying in state. She was to be placed in a coffin wrapped in the Prussian standard and buried alongside her husband and two youngest sons at Friedrichskirche in Potsdam. But dear young Wilhelm, enraged at once again finding nothing in his parents' papers, decided to slander his mother's name even now. He spread rumours that his mother had left instructions that she was to be buried as a British princess, not a German dowager empress. He stated that she wanted to be wrapped nude in the Union Jack and returned to her true home, England, for burial. These were all lies, but he made sure the story was believed with the true facts only coming out decades later. In many ways, this rather despicable episode around her funeral rather sums up much of Vicky's life. We started off this story with a vivacious and clever young woman, politically radicalised by her father and swept off her feet by a dashing young prince. She'd been told for her whole life that she had a purpose, 
a duty to her country and to the future of Europe. She went to Germany and did everything she could to fulfil that duty. She got involved in politics, she had children, she supported the war effort and her husband. And for that, she was hated by the establishment, hated by much of the people, and even hated by her eldest son. Prince Albert had hoped that marrying Vicky to Fritz would bring about peace, unity and liberalism to Germany. Instead, it led the country on the road to a war that would topple its monarchy and ruin a continent. It's easy then to look at Vicky's reign as a failure. And it was, if you only look at it on those terms. But you also have to look at the hand she was dealt. I'm not one to believe in fate, but it's hard to see how any of this could have played out differently. I mind to think of those toy cars that I had as a kid. They would reverse up and up and then let it go and it would spring forwards. She too had been primed and set on a path and did everything that she could to fulfil her task. But whatever she did, she kept hitting a wall. But that's only true if you look at her life from the perspective of politics. She had a loving husband and a number of loving children. She contributed greatly to German charity work, especially German nursing, and was a great support to her mother back in Britain. And just because she failed to stop Germany's inexorable shift towards Bismarckian hardline conservatism, it doesn't mean that she doesn't deserve plaudits for the campaign she fought. After all, Bismarck marked her out as one of his principal enemies. She must have done something right to keep being a thorn in his side for so long. But what I find truly extraordinary about Vicky is her endurance. The fact that she just kept on going. While all around her was falling to pieces, while friends and allies capitulated, while everyone around her hated her and wanted her to just shut up, she stuck to her guns. She did this to a fault, I think there's no arguing that. She may have had a little more success if she had moderated, sought a little more consensus and worked through others. But that wasn't who she was, nor how she was raised. It wasn't the plan. She was a glutton for punishment and persisted and persisted against all the odds. If she was a failure, then she was the kind of failure that should inspire us all. And with that, we will leave Vicky for the final time. Well, actually probably not for the final time, as she will be showing up from time to time in the rest of this series. But next time, we shall move on to Vicky's sister, Alice. A fellow wife of a German prince, Alice would have a rather happier time of it in Germany, and founded a great many women's causes. Tragically though, she was destined to have not quite such a long life as her dear old sis. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.